I had a few people ask me who died because I'm wearing a suit today. No one died. Um, I'm wearing a suit because it's laundry day. So <laughs> when you don't do your laundry that week, there's always a suit in the closet that's still clean because you never wear it. So that's what's going on. Uh, how many of you guys have any pet peeves? Some things that just kind of get on your nerves. You know, like people who say no offense as if that makes it less offensive. You know, or movies with really loud music and really quiet voices. Thank you, Christopher Nolan, every time. Uh, people who text without turning the keyboard off on their text. You guys you like ever hear that? Uh, so I hate that sound. Uh, never being able to plug a USB in the first time. If I could have a superpower, it'd be able to do plug the USB in first time. How many of you are sitting next to someone who's got way more pet peeves than you do? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, all of us have things that get on our nerves. Some of my least favorite things about being tall is blankets that don't cover my feet. I don't know why they can't add on just like one more foot, you know, just so, I mean, I have to sleep in the fetal position in order for it to cover my shoulders and my feet. I'm a grown man. I shouldn't have to do that. Uh, having to hang dry all my clothes, if I don't hang dry my pants, they will be capri pants, which is fine if you work at Old Navy or like a mega church, but not me. I don't have the ankles for it. <laughs> having to get people things down from the top shelf. Okay, here's my pet peeve about that. I never ask a short person to get things from down low for me. It hurts my back to bend down, but I never ask, so I'm not real sure why it gets reversed. Never mind. Um, <laughs> most of our pet peeves don't really matter in the grand scheme of things. They don't really matter in the eternal scheme of things. I've been thinking about John the Baptist recently. I've been reading a lot about him, and he had a pretty big pet peeve. He even called some of the top dog religious leaders at that time serpents, which is a big insult. It's like calling them Satan. Here, God could have chosen anyone to be the front runner for Jesus, to be the hype man. He looks like a homeless man with a bullhorn. He eats bugs. He wears handmade clothes that you won't find on Pinterest. He doesn't preach speak, uh, seeker-friendly sermons. John comes preaching about what? Repentance. It's the only thing he talks about. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. He essentially says, stop, drop, and roll won't work in hell, just so you know. <laughs> Ironically, John is not the guy most of us would pick to be the hype man for the sermon on Sunday morning. Most of us wouldn't be like, I want John to get up before Pastor Dan and just kind of set things up. He's not the guy most of us would want baptizing us because he might not bring us back up out of the water, you know? But that might be more commentary on us than it is him. John was perfect because he was driven by a singular pet peeve. He was annoyed by people who didn't take God seriously. He was annoyed by people who didn't take God seriously. He, was, he wasn't comfortable with people who just played religion. He called people to repent. Not just go to church, not just add a little Jesus to your life, not like he's a supplement. You know, don't put like a, a Jesus fish on your car or a cross for a tattoo. He says, repent. The word repent means to do a 180, a U-turn. You're going in one direction morally, you go the other direction when you repent. Jason Kidd, a basketball player, once said that he wants to turn the team 360 degrees around. Do you know which direction you're going when you go 360? The same direction you started out with. Jesus doesn't want you to do a 360 when you bring him into your life. He wants a 180. He wants you to turn things around morally. It's not because you come sinless, but you should sin less and less over time. 
It's strategic where John asked people to repent. He calls the people to what river? The Jordan River. Everyone say it. Jordan River. I had a little kid come up to me after church last Sunday, and he says, Pastor Dan, I got to tell you something. What is it? And I, you know, I get down, he's five, and he says, next Good Friday, I need to take a bath. I'm like, well, that's a long time to wait for a bath. And he says, I accepted Jesus into my heart today, so next Good Friday, I need a bath. He meant he needed to get baptized next Good Friday, because we always do baptisms on Good Friday. What a beautiful way of describing baptism, a spiritual bath, a spiritual cleansing. The Jordan River is the spot where God parted the waters to let the Israelites in through, with Joshua. God is calling them back to the beginning. It would be like me or someone saying, you need to go to the Canadian or Mexican border because you're not acting American enough and you need to take the Constitution all over again. How many of you would be insulted? It would be an insulting statement, but that's how it would have been because essentially John's coming along saying, you are not acting like God's chosen people. You need to remove yourself from the land and let's have a fresh start. Let's go back to where God brought us in. Let's repent and go back in determined to do a 180, determined to be the men and women God created us to be. It would be super insulting, but sometimes we need to be insulted because God and peace with us between us and God is more important than anything else in our lives. He's more concerned about our future than our feelings, our character than our comfort. Let's stand and read our theme verse this morning. Galatians chapter 5, verse 22 through 23. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. There is no law against these things. You may be seated. We've been in a series titled Breakfast of Champions. We almost called it gluten-free Christianity. There is no gluten in fruit. We want to be defined by the fruit of the Spirit. When people say our name, we want them to think about these nine characteristics. So when people say your name, do they think about Dan is love, Dan is patient, Dan is kind, Dan is faithful? Are those the words that people would use to describe us? When I wake up in the morning, I'm determined to be like this basket full of fruit. And there are nine pieces of fruit in here, different kinds. I'm determined to be like this basket of fruit. How many of you guys wake up and you're like, yes, I want to be that person? And yet something happens between snooze button and breakfast where I just start to lose pieces of fruit. And as the day goes on, I've got like this empty basket, you know. Uh, I determine to be peaceful, but I don't know what happens. The dog starts acting crazy, gets into the garbage. Kids start marking, uh, and my four-year-old starts foot mark all over his feet and starts tracking through the house. Something happens to my fruit, you know. But here's the reason why I think Paul calls it the fruit of the Spirit. First of all, it's not the fruit of, fruit of self. It's the fruit of the Spirit. But the reason why he calls it the fruit of the Spirit is you know what happens when you unplug fruit from its source? It begins to die. Once you take it off the vine, it begins, I don't care how pretty it is, it is a countdown towards death. In the same way, we have to be continuously plugged into the source of our love, joy, peace, patience, which is God. Jesus said, if you remain in me, I will remain in you and you will bear much fruit. You will bear much fruit. You see, this is not just a one and done. This requires a lifetime of cultivation. So it's not like you become a Christian and all of a sudden you're all nine fruit all the time. I know Christians. That's not true. (laughs) 
Even professional Christians like pastors, it's not true. <laughs> yeah. It's something that is cultivated over a lifetime of surrendering to God and going before his presence and allowing him to work on you. This morning, we're going to focus on just one of them, peace. Everyone say peace. How many of you guys could use some more peace? Yes, amen. In the words of John Lennon, imagine all the people living in peace. Woo-hoo. You have to have the woo-hoo or else it doesn't matter. In my mind, peace is at the heart of the Bible. Shalom. Peace appears 250 times in the Old Testament. The equivalent is 90 times in the New Testament. Jesus is the prince of Paul refers to the gospel as the gospel of Christians are called to be blessed are the peacemakers. God wants us to experience and express peace eternally, emotionally, and relationally. Genesis starts off with the perfect picture of peace, a garden where there's harmony between God, mankind, and creation. No sickness, no fear, no depression, no divorce, no death. No police, no politicians, no pastors. Thank you for not saying amen. No bears versus Packers. No Marvel versus DC. No Tamara sermons being better than Pastor Jason and Dan's. It's harmony and peace in the garden. He sings. The Bible ends with the same picture of peace. The prophet Isaiah paints this beautiful picture in Isaiah 11.6. The wolf will lie down with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together. And I love this picture. And a little child will lead them. What a beautiful picture of heaven. What a beautiful picture of peace. No more predator versus prey. No more loss of innocent blood. No more danger, Will Robinson, danger. But in between Genesis and Revelation is tension and discord. Yet we live in a world that struggles for peace. There's constant conflict. There are approximately 10 major wars going on in our world right now. The last time the world had a year without war was 597 A.D. We keep talking about how things are getting better and better. No, we just perpetually keep making the same mistakes. Maybe your family is not as peaceful as the stick figure family on the back of your car or as skinny. Relationally, 50% of marriages end in divorce. 13 million kids are bullied every year. And we're not just talking about wedgies, wet willies, and whoopee cushions. We're talking Lord of the Flies type of bullying. We experience worship wars, churches that end in major splits. The weather is crazy anymore. When I was growing up, April showers, May flowers meant rain showers, not snow showers. Just earlier this week, it felt like January 103. You know, no winter months should last that long. People struggle with depression, guilt, and anxiety. People keep asking me, Pastor Dan, how many books have you sold? I don't know. I don't track it. I do know that I've sold at least 30 because my mom bought that many. <laughs> She's a security officer, and she hands them out to everybody. You have the right to be, remain silent and to read this book. But as a part of this process, I've been on the radio twice this last week and multiple times before that. Twice this last week alone. People think that 15 minutes of fame is awesome. No, it's not. It's terrifying to be on the radio live. You're live with how many eavesdroppers, and they don't tell you what they're going to ask you ahead of time. You get on there, and they could ask you whatever they want, and you have my sarcasm. I don't know what's coming out of my mouth while everyone's listening to it. 
I would like to sell books, not have them boycott books. So I struggle with peace while I'm on for 15 minutes. There's a lot of things that cause us to struggle with peace. Even Jesus' hype man John struggled with peace. He had a moment of doubt. He's in prison on death row while Jesus is touring the country performing miracles for all these different people. People who didn't come close to John's caliber of spirituality. If Jesus is all that in a bag of chips, then why is this happening to John? Where's his protection? Where's his miracle? I scratch God's back. Isn't God supposed to scratch my back? Have you ever felt like that? You know the Prince of Peace, but you don't know peace personally? Right now is the season for tornadoes. America gets more tornadoes than any other country in the world. It's the reason why we have so many great tornado movies take place in the USA. Wizard of Oz, Twister, Sharknado. We average 1,200 a year. The worst ones travel along Tornado Alley, Texas, Oklahoma, Nebraska, and Kansas. I was driving towards the harbor a couple years ago. The skies were clear in front of me, but also the sirens came on. So you automatically assume that this is just like practice drills. But then I look in the rear view mirror, and it is that purple, green, black, whatever behind me. And so I pull off to the side, and sure enough, there's this huge water fount or tornado in the water right next to me off of Lake Michigan. And it's like this like F3. It's just huge. So I do the thing that you're supposed to do whenever you see a tornado. I start filming it. <laughs> and my wife calls me from a restaurant. She says, hey, bae. I hear the sirens. I can't find anything on the phone. What's going on? I said, there's a tornado. She says, how do you know? Because I'm filming it. <laughs> she says, are you nuts? You're supposed to be heading for a basement. I can't film it from the basement, bae. <laughs> there are times when it feels like our life is caught up in a tornado. We're surrounded by confusion, complication, and chaos. Letdowns won't seem to let up. We're afraid. We're lost. We're ashamed. We desperately want God to stand up and stop the storm. But instead, God wants us to find the eye of the storm. The calm that's in the midst of the storm. That's the weird thing about hurricanes and tornadoes is that right in the middle is peace. And God wants us to find that peace. Jesus' disciples experienced several major storms. In Mark chapter 4, verse 37 through 40, we read about one of them. It says, a ferocious squall came up and the waves broke over the boat. So that it was nearly swamped. Jesus was in the stern. What was he doing? Sleeping. How annoying is that? <laughs> the disciples woke him and said, Teacher, don't you care if we drown? He got up, rebuked the wind, and said to the waves, Quiet, be still. Then the wind died down, and it was completely calm. He said to his disciples, Why are you so afraid? Do you still have no faith? The Sea of Galilee is 14 miles long and 7 miles wide. The lake is surrounded by mountains, so it's a little bit like downtown Chicago with all those huge towers where the wind could just kind of like whip through. The same thing would happen with that lake because of the mountains. They would often end up with 6 to 7 foot waves because of the storms that would come through. As a kid, I was out on Lake Michigan in a small boat, so far enough out where you couldn't see shore anymore. When a storm all of a sudden came through and we hit five-foot waves, where all of a sudden you're like looking up at the sky and then you're looking down at the water. It's terrifying. These disciples are out there. They are professional fishermen. They have experienced storms before. 
but they are so terrified that they are freaking out and feel like they're going to drown, which means this is a bad storm. In fact, the word that is used for this storm, the squall, is seismos, which is where we get the word for seismic activity. It's like an earthquake. But what is Jesus doing? Sleeping. Jesus knows that the storm is not in control of his life. The storm is not in control of his life. He knows that no storm can prevent God's plan. He didn't come to die in a shipwreck because of a storm. Unlike the disciples, Jesus has peace in the midst of the storm. This is the only place in the Gospels which describe Jesus as sleeping, and it's strategic. Jesus doesn't tell God how big the storm is. He tells the storm how big God is. Jesus asks an important question. Where is your faith? He would ask you the same question this morning. Where is your faith? If your faith is in the storm, you're going to freak out. But if your faith is in your Savior, you can have peace in the midst of the storm. But you have to choose one or the other. It's faith in the storm or in the Savior. It's either panic or peace. You can't have both. I started asking myself an interesting question this week. When's the last time I had the greatest amount of peace in my life? What are the seasons in my life where I've experienced the greatest amounts of peace? Some of you are calculating how old your oldest child is. And you're like, well, it's been about 23 years. I thought about a couple of moments for me. One was shortly after I accepted Christ. Tornado sirens went off, and for the first time in my life, I wasn't afraid. All my life, I was terrified of tornadoes. When the sirens went off, I was in the basement, which was not easy as a kid because we had a crawl space. And the entrance was in my parents' closet where you had to pull up this latch and you had to like dig through all this stuff and burrow your way into the closet. So it took desperation to get down there. As soon as the siren went up, I would go and hide my entire life. But after God providentially rescued me, and for those of you who haven't heard this story, I'm going to just give an abbreviated version. I lived an awful life as a teenager. I not only did drugs, I sold drugs. I was awful. But one night, I hit rock bottom, and I prayed an agnostic prayer of God. I don't know if you're real, but if you are, I need you to rescue me. That same week, my grandparents came up without me telling anybody. They said, we were praying for you this week. God put you on your heart, and we feel like we're supposed to ask you to come live with us in Cribbits, Wisconsin. If you've ever been lost, that's what it's like to live in Cribbits, Wisconsin. <laughs> they came, and they rescued me. And I knew in that moment, God knew who I was. He loved me enough to rescue me. And so for like a season, I had just this complete piece of like tornado sirens are going off. We're living in a trailer. There's no basement. And I'm outside. And I'm like watching it because I'm like, my life is not under control by a tornado. My life is under the control of God who loves me enough to rescue me from drugs and alcohol and all that stuff. And so he's not going to abandon me. Another time, a few years later, I experienced another situation. I had wrote down in my diary, I mean, my journal, and uh, I was interning for a gentleman who was the youth pastor of this church. And one night I was reading my Bible and I was praying and I felt like God said to me, he's going to leave and you're going to be asked to be the youth pastor. And so I, I wrote it down and I was like, God, that sounds nuts. First of all, he's only been here a year and a half. He's doing an awesome job. The youth group is actually doing better than the church is doing. He's not talked about leaving. He has no interest. He keeps saying this is the best job he's ever had in his life. Uh, I haven't finished college. In fact, they had the chance to hire me before they hired him, and they said no. So I don't think I'm really high up on the list of people that they want to bring on. Sure enough, a couple weeks later, 
Senior pastor says, hey, I need to talk to you. Brings me in. Lee's leaving. He's moving to Ireland. We need you to take over the church. What? God knows what he's talking about? It's in my journal? Once again, it was one of those moments where I just, I knew God had my back, that he was watching out for me. And it's in those moments where all doubt is gone, that we know that God's real. I find that our greatest source of peace comes when we trust in God's power and God's passion. Our greatest peace comes when we trust in God's power. It's not enough just to believe God's powerful, because if he doesn't care about you, that doesn't give you peace. And it's not enough to just believe that he cares about you, because if he's not powerful enough to do something about it, that's not going to give you peace. But it's the combination of he's powerful and he's passionate about me. Philippians 4, 6-7. Do not be anxious about anything. I want everyone to say that with me. Do not be anxious about anything. But in every situation, by prayer and petition with thanksgiving, present your request. There's a reason why it says with thanksgiving. Because it's a prayer of trust. That God, I know you're going to do something about this. I can thank you in advance for it. Present your request to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. God wants you to live under peace, not under pressure. Romans 15, 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace. He wants you to be full of peace as you trust in him. Notice the conditional statement. As you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. God wants us to be full of peace, but it requires trusting him. You see, a change in peace often comes from a change in perspective. A change in peace often comes from a change in perspective, getting to see things through heaven's eyes. But that's not always easy for us to do, is it? It's not always easy for us to maintain that peace, maintain that trust. Sure, he's come through in the past. You know, he, he rescued me from drugs and alcohol, and, and, and he providentially came through and he hooked me up with being a youth pastor. But do you think I carry around peace with me all the time? No. Every time something new comes along, it once again becomes, well, I know God had me then, but what about this thing? Wouldn't it be great if we just learned the lesson the first time and then we just carried that with us for the rest of our lives? Am I the only one that leaks fruit? Or am I talking to somebody this morning? You know, Moses experienced that. Here, God rescued them from Egypt, 400 years of slavery. He parts the Red Sea. He performs miracles. What happens as soon as they run out of food? God, there's no Walmarts around here, no Sam's Club. How are you going to take care of us? And God asked them a strategic question. Is my arm too short? Is my arm too short? Even though I'm tall now, when I was little, I was short. All the way up till 10th grade, I was short. I used to sing the song, I wish I was a little bit taller, wish I was a baller, wish I knew a girl who looked good, I would call her. All the time. That was my nightly prayer. God, please, taller, baller, girl, whatever. Just make those three things happen. In fact, a buddy of mine had this picture, life-size picture of Michael Jordan where his arms are like out and he's holding a basketball. So you could like go see his wingspan versus yours. You guys ever see that poster? And I'd be like, man, if only I could have arms. I would have looked ridiculous with arms like that. They'd be like knuckles dragging on the ground. You know? But I was like, if I had arms like that, go, go, Gadget, and I could just grab whatever, you know? Wouldn't have to ask taller people to get stuff off the fridge for me. And sometimes we feel like God's arms are too short. 
that he can't do something about our, he can't reach into our situation to do something about what we're facing today. But I have news for you. The same Jesus asleep in the boat is the same Jesus in your life right now. He's in the boat with you. Yes, there may be a storm coming. He never promised that if I get in the boat, there's not going to be storms. He never made that promise. But he did promise that I will be in the boat with you and that you too can rest in the providence and protection and peace of God that surpasses all understanding. But it's going to require trust. It's going to require leaning in. It's going to require plugging in to the God of peace to have the peace of God. Amen? Worship team's going to come up, and they're going to lead us in a classic hymn, It Is Well With My Soul. And many people have heard this song, but they don't know the story behind it. The gentleman who wrote it, Horatio, he lost one son to scarlet fever. He lost all his property to a Chicago fire. He lost a couple of daughters to a ship that sank. And it is as a, he was on a ship traveling over the same spot where his daughters went down, approximately, that he wrote the words to this song, It is well with my soul. That's not natural. That can only be supernatural. And some of us need some supernatural peace this morning. So make it your prayer. God, it is well with my soul. But as I surrender that, and I say, not my will, but your will be done, God, may your peace come in and strengthen me to face whatever I need to face.